Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Today's show is all about women in medicine, and we are so fortunate to have with us three incredible speakers. Now, in February 2019, Dr. Yumiko Kadota wrote in her blog, I never thought I would say this, but I broke. I give up. I am done. I'm handing back my dream of becoming a surgeon. Long story short, that led to her memoir, Emotional Female, which tells of her experiences as a surgical trainee. Now, if you've been anywhere near a radio or TV in the last couple of weeks, you'll have heard about Emotional Female because it has really hit a nerve. Yumiko's story is a fascinating one, which begs the question posed in the book's publicity. Who's looking after the people looking after us? Dr. Kate Martin is a general and trauma surgeon working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Now, besides trauma surgery, Kate has an interest in operating on melanomas and breast disease, as well as being actively involved in registrar training and education. She is an instructor at the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons in Early Management of Severe Trauma, or EMST. Kate will be telling us what got her into surgery and what keeps her there. Dr. Natalie Nan is a plastic surgeon. Studying medicine in New Zealand, she discovered her passion for reconstructive surgery. Then after training in the field, she spent a year in Canada on fellowships specialising in breast reconstruction. So she's had experience of the surgical world on three different continents. We'll be chatting, chatting with Natalie about her work and her work-life balance. On the panel today, staring at me, will be Dr. G-Spot, psychologist to the stars, and Nurse EpiPen, a spleen's best friend. Mix in a splash of music and you've got the perfect 60 minutes of health radio, ah, podcast, ah, live stream, all those three. So stick with me, Dr. Mal, and the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, Dr. G-Spot. Hello, Dr. Mal. What an exciting show we have. Such inspirational women we'll be chatting to today. It is such a great show. And we have spent probably, I don't know, uh, the last month putting it all together. So it's... We actually have done some work for this show, which is rare. <laughs> it's rare, listeners. So we hope you appreciate all the effort we put in today. And Nurse EpiPen. Uh, good morning. Am I on? You're on, you're on, baby. Well, you're on. I'm thinking G-Spot um, uh, and I should learn the panel and then you can go and I walk in super- the park. I am superfluous. I am just a pusher <laughs> of buttons. I, then it uh, could be an all-women's show. I, well, it, it is basically an all-women's show today. We've got three like fantastic guests and i got to say more power to you, um, EpiPen, because you actually lined up our three guests today. Oh, so absolutely. well done. You put a lot well of work done, into EpiPen. it, getting everything together and uh, it's going to be a fantastic show. And, you know, normally we would have a bit of a banter, talk about what's news in the medical literature and so forth. But we just really want to hop right into the show this morning. So on the line, or on the Zoom, as they say, we've got uh, Dr. Um, Yumiko Kadota. And um, you're going to, yeah, why don't you lead off? Okie dokie, okie dokie. Yumiko, so can you set the scene for us? Um, how did you get into medicine? What was your passion? What got you there? Can you answer those questions? Oh, good morning, EpiPen and Dr. Mal and G-Spot. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, well, um, I have been a doctor for just over 10 years now, and it's something that I definitely was interested in from high school. Um, I had a few different interests in school. I really enjoyed music as well, but I loved science, and I liked that medicine combines both science and the human element of caring for other people. And... Later on in high school, I heard about a case of a a jaw reconstruction using a rib. And I was really fascinated by this case. I thought, wow, that is so clever. You know, the human anatomy that intimately to to think of the curvature of a rib approximating that of a mandible. And I thought, wow, like plastic surgeons are amazing. The creativity (laughs) and the, the technical skill to be able to do that is so cool. And so... Plastics was definitely something I wanted to to do even before entering medicine. But of course, they tell you not to make any decisions before you've actually done it yet. So I did um, enter medicine with an open mind and I did enjoy all of my rotations from psychiatry to GP to surgery. Loved it all. But I think 
surgery just gave me a different feeling. It was visceral for me, just walking into the operating theater, the excitement of it, the pace. Um, and I think I've always been a mechanical learner as well. So it kind of um, appealed to my style of, of learning and doing things. So that's how it all started. Mm, interesting. And in your book, you described that things didn't go so well for you. What, what was going on there? Yeah, I think that's probably a bit of an understatement. <laughs> I was a bit of a hot mess at the end of it. Yeah, but, um, sorry about that. No, in, initially I was great. I had a really great internship and I enjoyed all of my rotations. But I think that the more I progressed, the more I realised there were certain barriers that I wasn't really expecting. I mean, I grew up with a very supportive father who never make, made me feel like I couldn't do anything just because I was a girl. He always encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do. So... I never thought that I would face any sort of challenge. I always thought that if you kind of worked really hard towards something that anything was possible. But um, I I don't think I exactly knew what was going on at the time in that there were incidents of racism and sexism that I can now identify looking back. But I think that when you're working so hard, you never stop to kind of feel sorry for yourself or, or ponder what's going on in the, the wider mm. system, I guess. You just kind of ignore things and get on with it. But um, it, it did, I think the layers kind of built up over, over many years. And towards the end, there was a mixture of these kind of, I guess, microaggressions in the workplace that were weighing me down. But eventually what did make me quit was actually the workload. I, I was working a job where I was doing a ridiculous amount of on-call in a very small unit and and eventually it was more for health reasons that my physical mental health suffered too much and, and that's, yeah. that's yeah. the ultimate reason why I left. But yeah. there were, yeah, other issues along the way. Yeah, yeah, very tough. And and how's the book going? Has has For you personally, has it been a helpful thing to do, to write? And are you getting quite a few people buying your book? Yeah, I think yes and no. I think that it's been good to kind of reflect on what's happened and it's been a learning experience for me as well. And I've always been a creative person, so to get to work with editors at Penguin was a really valuable experience from from that side of things. But personally, it hasn't been easy writing it because obviously I've had to think back about the more unpleasant times during my career. I mean, it wasn't all bad, of course. There were lots of highs as well as lows, and I definitely don't want to discourage anyone from entering medicine because it is a wonderful profession. There's so much good you can do for, for others and the community. So um, th there were highs as well as lows that I wrote about. And overall, the, uh, it's been great to hear from other women, actually. Mm -hmm. um, it, by sharing our stories, we can validate each other's experiences. And I've heard back from so many women surgeons and, and women doctors as well, not, not just in surgery, but other specialties who have related to some of my experiences. Um, I, I don't think that my story is particularly unique. I think the only you need to think about it is I'm the only kind of person silly enough to put my name to it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's been nice to hear from other people and know that I've kind of helped them feel seen. Hey, Yumiko, G-Spot here. Love your book. Um, thank you so much for uh, putting pen to paper and sharing your story. Um, I'm also lucky enough to follow you on Twitter and you followed me back. So thank you. <laughs> I was like the most famous person who's ever followed me back. <laughs> Um, so just, I'm so glad that you've had such positive feedback uh, on your book, but I was also reading on your Twitter feed that you've had some some less than positive feedback, some maybe some trolling even. I was mm. wondering if you wanted to sort of uh, take this opportunity to sort of speak to the trolls. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know who they are. Well, some of them I know, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I've, I've had some comments like, oh, classic whining Asian, I think was one of the messages I received. I didn't even know being a whiner was an Asian trait, but um, <laughs> there you go, <laughs> learning something new. Um, and, you know, I also had a bookseller um, write quite a nasty review and it, it after a lot of um, digging around that my friends have done it, it turns out that she is the wife of um, 
a white male doctor who worked at a hospital I was at. So that kind of might partially explain some of the vitriol in that review. So there've been a, a little bit of, um, yeah, a little bit of unpleasantness like that. But but overall, um, it's been positive. So I'm trying not to focus too much on, on the trolling side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to actually get your thoughts on um, how the title Emotional Female came about. <laughs> well, it was um, something I got called and... Ironically, it made me even more emotional when I got called that because <laughs> why is it that women get called emotional but not men? It, I just feel like it's such a gendered insult and mm. seems to be almost exclusively aimed at women. And I just wanted to reclaim that because it's a good thing to be emotional, particularly if you're working in a caring profession and you're working with people who are sick or injured and really do need you to be human and to connect with them. But just to give the context of, of when that happened, it was probably not the best time to have a conversation. It was three o'clock in the morning. I'd just been <laughs> woken up. Uh, I was on call for emergency. So I pick up thinking, okay, do I need to go and have someone cut off their thumb? You know, I'm on standby alert, ready to go. But it ended up being a phone call about um, booking an appointment. And so I, I felt <laughs> the need to, at this point, I'd been doing so much on call. I was exhausted and I wanted to protect myself as well as my other colleagues who are doing a lot of on call to say, look, you know, we're on call for emergencies. You, pr you probably could have waited till the morning to book an appointment. Um, but the and I was polite about it, but unfortunately the conversation escalated and the the male doctor who I was talking to said, Well, stop being an emotional female. It's not a big deal. Like get over it, kind of thing. So yeah, that was not a fun conversation, but it did make me stop and think about the way women are spoken to, because I know for a fact that if my male colleague had said the same thing over the phone, I don't think he would have been called emotional. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started to reflect on the kind of microaggressions that women in male dominated workplaces experience. And that was just one example of that. I just wanted to say power to you, Yumiko, for um, reclaiming that title, Emotional Female. I just mm. think as a clinical psychologist, I'm just spending so much time just normalising emotional expression and encouraging mm. it for people to have more enriching relationships. I wonder if you could even change your book to Emotionally Well-Adjusted Female. <laughs> like it's just, yeah, like I just, I see the the um, the problems of being unemotional um, mm. impacting life people's lives so greatly that yes. uh yeah I I um yeah I think it's almost fantastic that you were called emotional and I love that you called this book emotional female yeah and I really want more men to feel comfortable being emotional too I've Tell had, me had about male, yeah yeah male <laughs> readers write to me and say I wish there was a book that said emotional male but the thing is you know I think that there's so much toxic masculinity in some of these industries and men feel like they can't express their emotions or say that when they're feeling tired or however they're feeling so this book even you know I thought I would alienate men and non-binary readers by calling it emotional female but I'm I'm glad that some men are reading it and I just hope that we can encourage all people to 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 express emotion I think it's a part of intelligence you know you need to be emotionally intelligent to to do jobs like medicine because it's all about human interaction and as you say it's such an important part of connecting with other people absolutely and dr malpractice is going to write that book emotional mail um, so thank you for yeah, that thank you that she, she, yeah. you just read my mind I've got, I've got the title for my next book emotional that's such a great title emotional thank you, people oh, emotional, people. Yeah, emotional gender now. diverse groups yeah. <laughs> um so you i have to tell you a funny link in your story in your book to me so, oh. so oh. on page 331, you mention <laughs> a paediatric surgical book that you went to buy online, Jones's yes. Clinical Paediatric Surgery. Yes. And that was my father. <gasps> oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Did you get what the book? I sure did. I read it. Oh, well, yeah. EpiPen can sign it for you yeah, if you like. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. you do say in the book what a small world it is. It is. Well, there you go. There you go. So <laughs> you don't know. Point. Well, I don't know if you know my real name, but uh, I think you might have written an email. <laughs> yeah, I just have to get it out now. Oh, wow. So Amazing. there you go. Isn't that a small world? 
Yeah. Uh, Yumiko, you can't see me because the camera is pointed in an opposite mm-hmm. direction, which is probably good for you that you can't see me. But um, I don't cast a good uh, a good image on a Sunday morning or, um, or, any, day. or any day, really. Um, I was going to ask you, what was it like going from the medical world into the publishing world? Like, it's, it's kind of a... A bit of a dream of mine to do that, <laughs> um, and it's never going to happen. But I mean, it, it, tell us what that experience was like. It's been it's been wonderful. It's been so different. I mean, the funny thing is, publishing is nearly all women, so it was such a girl power moment. I even remember my first meeting at, at Penguin Random House. I went to the Melbourne office, and it was a table surrounded by these really brilliant women who are very um, supportive and really behind my story. And even though none of them were doctors, a few of them had people in the medical profession and some of them had experienced burnout themselves. So it was a really nice moment where I could connect with them Mm -hmm. about the story. And then, yeah, I mean, from the beginning, I didn't even know how the book industry worked. I didn't even know literary agents existed or, or the process of writing. But um, it was really great. Um, from, yeah, from the start, I felt like everyone at the publishing house was behind me. And it was such a nice experience to feel that because I think mm. that sometimes going through medicine, you don't always have the support or people who will mm. champion your work. So it, it was a really uplifting experience for me. So what's next for you, Yumiko? Is there another book in you? Um, yeah, let us know what's happening with you. I, I was always going to wait until this book came out to see what the feedback was like. I mean, I thought maybe some people would tell me to go back to my day job. So I, just, um, I thought, yeah, if it does well enough, I'd love to write again because I do enjoy writing. But at the moment, I'm enjoying having a balanced life. I have thankfully been able to return to some clinical work. So I assist a couple of plastic surgeons in the private system. And it's it's not nearly as rewarding as working in the public hospital, but I figure that it's a good kind of compromise for me where I still get to enjoy being in the operating theatre environment in a, in a nice um, civilised kind of place where um, the surgeons have the same nurses every single week. So they've all gotten to know me. I know them. It feels like going to work with family. So I'm glad that I'm still able to use my surgical skills, even though it's not in the same kind of environment and then have some time to do other things like yoga. And I've recently gotten into body pump as well so i'm I'm enjoying a very well balanced life that's great to hear yumiko yeah yumiko that's a a great um way to start our show this morning and such a good book that i did read that um connected with me too in sort of certain areas so thank you so much for being on our show and sharing your experience with us Uh, you're very brave writing a book like this and yeah, and, and Yumiko, sorry to interrupt, Epi. I was going to say, Yumiko, you're able to hang around for the next sort of 45 yeah, minutes or yeah, so? Yeah, I will. Fantastic, because we'd love yeah, to... Yeah, I want to hear from Kate and Natalie too. Yeah, great. That? Fantastic, okay. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, you are listening to 3RRR. This is Radio Therapy. You're also streaming us, aren't you? You're streaming us. I can feel people streaming us. You're also podcasting us. I can feel the potties podcasting us as well. I'm Dr. Mal. In the studio with me is Nurse EpiPen squinting at me yeah, and Dr. G-Spot as well. But it wouldn't be podcasting. They could that podcast be, later. Yeah, later. They're yeah pod- but yeah, they're, they're not podcasting now. No, but by See, hearing... It's not it, very bright. By hearing... <laughs> I don't have to explain myself. Hey, can I tell you? Can I? Can I tell you how excited I am? I don't think we've had a plastic surgeon on the show for a long time, and I'm so excited that we've got a plastic surgeon. I agree uh, on the show because I've got a bit of work that I need. To... Oh, here we go. Because <laughs> basically, this is an hour for me to get a free medical consult. Yeah, yep. so that's I'm why gonna... I'm trying to zip you as much as possible. Uh, so I've got a few things I'm going to ask and yes, but um, yes. I'm going to throw to you. Yes. So um, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Natalie. And um, the usual question, how did you get into medicine and plastic surgery? Uh, thanks, EpiPen. Thanks for the opportunity. Hi. Uh, good morning, Dr. G and Dr. Mal. Um, I'm actually originally from New Zealand, which um, you'll pretty much hear after. <laughs> <laughs> that twang. Um I was not from a medical family and my strengths, I guess, at school were um, 
you know, maths and sciences and also commerce. And it was really my father, um, Yumiko said her father was instrumental in her um, decision as well. But um, I have an older brother and, and it was me and my father um, was brought up in quite a traditional Chinese family, but he was determined to make things different his time around. So um, my brother and I had exactly the same opportunities. We were treated, you know, pretty very equally and encouraged to both become doctors, actually. Um, my brother's a dentist. But anyway, um, he thought medicine would be a good idea because knowing that I was a minority female, um, that it would be hard in the business world. So he said, well, why don't you just try medicine? So I was like, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> Easy peasy. <laughs> pretty much that's all it was. Um, obviously, it was tough work to get in but uh, and tough work throughout. But um, that, that's the background. As far as plastic surgery goes, I got into medicine thinking about general practice having not experienced sort of medicine um and then i was my first experience with plastic surgery was as a um fifth year medical student and somehow was in the case of a um significant facial trauma and saw how um a very senior plastics registrar and a maxillofacial registrar together put this person's face back together um and blown away put it aside and then um thought about anesthetics thought about psychiatry um (laughs) (laughs) and then um serendipitously i did a rotation by chance into you know um plastic surgery and i loved it like i loved surgery as well but i could see you know orthopedics i enjoyed but wasn't really going to be me wasn't really going to do general surgery but then something about plastic surgery um i enjoyed and i thought well i'll give this a go until i really disliked it and i still kind of like it i think (laughs) Uh, and so and why is it called plastic surgery you know what's can you tell us the origin of that word yeah it comes from the greek plastikos so to form or mold and um i think that meaning sort of been lost um but the plastic thing is you know, we, um, it's about returning people to form and function. Um, so it's a lot of that, yeah, reconstruction. Mm. Mm. That's exactly what Dr. Mal is looking for, Natalie, to return to form <laughs> and function. But I'm going to jump in before him. Uh, so, Natalie, I've been lucky enough to do a bit of work with um, cosmetic and plastic surgeons in terms of, like, psychological assessments before people undergo surgery. And I think there's a bit of a misconception in the public that cosmetic and plastic surgeons are the same. And I wanted you to um, clarify for people what the difference is. Um, thanks for that question. Um, so to become a you know plastic surgeon, um, and we'll hear from Kate Martin, who's a trauma surgeon, but we have um, five letters after our name. So once we go through intense selection process, um, multiple exams, um, which takes about ten years on top of you know between five and six years of medical school, um, we're awarded the fellowship um, of the Australasian College of Surgeons. So the Fellowship of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, um, which means we actually are technically surgeons. Um, nowadays, um, cosmetic surgery has become quite a fashionable thing, whatever cosmetic surgery means to whoever it means to, um, out there. Um, so people have come in and done maybe a course or two and, and um, have then branded themselves as cosmetic surgeons, um, performing procedures such as liposuction, breast augmentation in their Offices because um, only surgeons can actually operate in in an accredited hospital. So it's definitely a misnomer out there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, clarifying that, Natalie. And just speaking of operations, what are the most common ones that Mm. you do in your practice? Um, So in my training, I learned to do every um, area of plastic surgery, but I have um, subspecialized into breast. Um, so that's breast reconstruction after mastectomy or um, you know, breast cancer. Um, and then other breast operations such as breast reduction, breast augmentation. I see young girls with breast asymmetry who haven't developed the same on both sides. Um, I do do some uh, abdominoplasty, blepharoplasty, but my main area is breast. 
Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm quite interested in, so it sounds like you do basically everything on the boobs, if I might say <laughs> that um, more common word. Um, what are, I suppose, the most common reasons for people coming in, particularly the breast augmentation area? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, interesting being a female, because if you asked that to perhaps one of my male colleagues, you might get a they are different women who see a female plastic surgeon for a breast augmentation. It's a very select group. Um, so I see lots of women who are very private, um, post having children, post breastfeeding, very um, nervous about coming in. And basically they're just wanting to go back to the way they were before they had children. So, um, you know, just loss of confidence. And, and it's very hard for a many men or some women who haven't gone through that to understand um so i see a select group of women and often they're just coming in to look very natural a to a b cup b to a c cup obviously i see other women who are wanting slightly more obvious augments but the vast majority of my patients are those post breastfeeding postpartum women do you do any counseling before i mean i'm sure you do sort of speak to the patients <laughs> Natalie, but is there is there kind of a, like a do you spend time discussing the reasons why and the alternatives for people that come to you for uh, cosmesis type surgery? Yeah, absolutely. My first consultation lasts between 45 minutes to an hour. And I always see people at least a second time before I operate on wow. someone. Um, wow. Definitely there's, you know, an element of surgical psychiatry, to be honest. And again, that, that female um, sort of thing, women are quite candid about what they tell me. Um, things about how it's affecting their relationships. I certainly do not operate on women who have been brought in by a partner. And I, I just don't get those sorts of patients. They're really women empowering themselves and making a decision for themselves, not for anyone else. Um, I do, do also have a um, psychologist I, I, um, I work with whom if I have concerns about a patient or certainly I see younger girls that are under 18, they see a psychologist before proceeding with surgery. That is extraordinary. You spend 45 minutes to an hour in the first consult. I mean, uh, you can tell that you wanted to do psychiatry because that is um, <laughs> that really is quite extraordinary. That, that wouldn't be, I mean, typically in surgery, it's, it's not considered, uh, that wouldn't be the routine, would it? I mean, I'm not getting you to comment on your, on your other colleagues, but in surgery, the decisions, to my mind, as a, as a psychiatrist, are usually fairly clear. So there doesn't have to be a lot of talking. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, you might be right. Interestingly, you know, I did do um, some general surgery and, and people love, you know, when they get into general surgery, the acute abdomen and, yeah. and the diagnostic yeah. problem. But in plastic surgery, the diagnosis is not, you know, the, yeah. the, the challenge. The challenge is the treatment options because there are so many yeah. and who to operate on. What's the right operation for the yeah. right person? Um, this, I'm just going to change the tone of this session a little bit because G-Spot last month has introduced a funny side of this show where we try to have a joke. So I've got a plastic surgery joke. <laughs> have you got any, Natalie? But here's mine. So there's a woman that's had so much plastic surgery done to herself or part of her body and she's donated her her body to Tupperware when she dies. Boom, boom. <laughs> boom, boom. Boom, Do you have any funny plastic surgery jokes? Um, I have jokes about surgeons, but I'm not willing to share them on the air. <laughs> we'll save them for the social yeah. media feed, Natalie. Thank so so you. going back to something more serious, um, what, what's your, what's your favourite operation? What, do you, what really do you really look forward to when you start, you know, thinking of your day and... Oh, that's a good question, um, EpiPen. Um, look, I really love um, reconstruction for, you know, breast cancer reasons. Um, a lot of it, you know, uh, and Yumiko sort of mentioned about the whole environment of being in an operating theatre and the team and the technical aspect I absolutely just love. I mean, it's something that we all get a buzz from um, and that's why we do surgery and want to do surgery. Um, it's the aftermath, like who are the people that we, you know, the difference that we make to people and, and that that's the other big part of the, the job is that a woman coming in who's had a, um, you know, 
size double H breasts and then goes down to a C and and the confidence you see on their faces, the new wardrobe they're wearing, the difference in their personality or mm. um, the young girl who's had asymmetrical breasts all her life and suddenly she can wear the same bra. Those, it's just, yeah, I can't give you one operation. I love operating, so. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, can I ask you, um, Natalie, what, do you play music in theatre? I do. What do you play? Um, I choose popular music. I love popular music, but I try to cover it for all tastes. You might talk to some of my anethetists and they're not, they don't like the taste. <laughs> I have been known to play Taylor Swift. We've talked about this before. Yes. Uh, I play, I like Bruno Mars. I like, I like lots of popular music. Adele. Yeah. Wow. Nice, nice. I, I just I've, look. I've never asked a surgeon this, but when you choose your music, I mean, you obviously consider the other people in your in in theatre with you. Do you ever yeah. like like is there a vote and is there <laughs> is it a democracy or is it like no? Hang on, I'm thinking Taylor Swift today, and you guys are just going to have to <laughs> bear it. Or but... oh no, I have a pretty inclusive theatre. I have an all female team, and yeah. um, we tend to. And the nurses really love my music. My needs to some of them. I hope they're listening. <laughs> the time that people complain the most is Christmas time because I love Christmas music and my sister, like, we love that. By the time I've heard Mariah Carey <laughs> the day, my needs to start playing DJ and just boarding it. So, yeah. oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a really good time chatting with you and, um, Take care. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much, Natalie. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And you're back with three Triple R. There's uh, Dr. G Spot in the studio. The funny Dr. Mal practice in the studio. <laughs> funny Dr. Mal practice. <laughs> He's trying to do his best. You've become so professional on this show. Aaron. Exactly. He's already hitting up Natalie for an appointment. <laughs> Just a bit of lipo here. Oh, and Talk, what about there. your boobs? Are you going to get them done too? Excuse me. <laughs> Back to the show. Thank you. Okay. And now we've got the bubbly... Kate Martin, who Bubbly. is, she is, who's a passionate Essendon supporter and uh, trauma surgeon at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Um, we'll kick off with the usual question, Kate. How did you, the hell did you get into surgery? Thank you very much, um, EpiPen. And thanks also, Dr. Mel and Dr. D for inviting me on. So how did I get into medicine? Um, so this is a bit of a hard show to follow after Yumiko um, and Natalie, but for me, I think it was very similar. It, I, I love my sciences, particularly the natural sciences, particularly biology. And, um, you know, I was I was fortunate enough to be um, at a smaller high school where we had the attention of our teachers and was was really sort of mentored all the way through my latter years of high school. And one of, one of it was actually the year seven coordinator who mentioned a surgeon who had attended Essendon High School, um, um, Don Esmore. And it, who was at the oh, Alfred Hospital. And so I heard the last four years of high school, all <laughs> I had drummed into me was Don Esmore. Anyway, <laughs> so that was part of it. Another part of it was, I think it was just gravitating towards that. So that's, that's probably what, what drove me towards it. Nobody in my family had um, was medical in any way. My mum is a dressmaker, though. So maybe that's where oh, the, yeah. the yeah. surgical yeah. part came into it. And a very lovely, neat dressmaker as well. So I think that's sort of that... That passion of having it really nice and neat and perfect all the time, which I think is a bit of a, a surgical trait, and I think a little bit a little bit of OCD is good in surgery <laughs> when it comes to things like that. Quite frankly, um, so that's probably how how I how I got into it. Uh, and I did meet Don Esmore eventually. I did point oh, wow. out to him that we went to the same high school, so he's very excited about that. Oh, good, good. So you're a trauma surgeon, and I know you've been advocating for trauma surgery to be a specialty. Where have you got there? Is it yet? Well, yes, 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 yes. So two, this is the second year. So um, so the, there are nine specialties um, that come under the umbrella of the uh, Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and then there's also ophthalmology as, as well. So 
But trauma surgery is not done by just one craft group. So orthopedic surgeons, plastic surgeons, plastic and reconstructive surgeons, I think is, is a really good way to um, refer to plastic surgeons. Um, uh, vascular surgeons, neurosurgeons, we all treat injured patients. And so it's never kind of really had a, a specialty umbrella. And we formed, I was part of a group that formed a society well, close to 10 years ago now called ANZUS, the Australian New Zealand Association for the Surgery of Trauma. And we have just got a, a post-fellowship program up and running, um, which started two years ago. So um, we've got our second graduate going through this year. So that that's in general surgery initially, but with it uh, looks that we'll be really close to having vascular and orthopedics on board soon. So surgeons do their surgical training in a specialist at the moment, it's general surgery and then do another two years specifically of trauma training. And that doesn't mean that other surgeons can't do trauma. And in fact, all surgeons who participate in an on-call roster manage injured patients pretty much. And as Natalie will, will know, that would have been a huge chunk of, and Yumiko too, a huge chunk of, of your, your on-call and your training as a preset trainee and then as a trainee as well. And that doesn't stop once you become a consultant necessarily, especially in a big um, sort of, public hospital with a big emergency department so we're there we've got it and we just need to expand it now so we, we've got there congratulations um i was doing a bit of research on all of this and preparing for today's session and i went on to the australasian uh, college of surgeons website and found that there is a dedicated section called women in surgery and we've had Kate Drummond on this show and I could see she's been a, a pivotal person in that group. And a touche to the women in surgery that it's, you know, it's, it's been able to develop such a um, supportive group, really. We're very, we're very lucky, I think, that certainly my experience, and I, and I often think, I, I don't know if it's luck or just who I've been those that I've had around me as mentors, I've had I've had a lot of I've had a lot of female mentors, a lot of and not all the surgeons either. I think that's been really important, but I've also had a lot of men help me along the way too. And I've tried to work out what it is that's made that that difference. I think a lot of it is generational. I think a lot of certainly my supervisor through training was was not a lot older um, than myself, so he he knew what it was like to be a trainee, for example, had not mm. forgotten that. Mm. The women in surgery sort of group at, at RACS, though, has really sort of um, progressed the issues that are important not only to women, but I think to the broader surgical community and therefore our patients too. And I think that's where the real benefits will come from that. It's not so much about just looking after women. It's actually about looking after surgeons. And by looking mm. after surgeons, we then look after our, our patients. Mm. That sounds fantastic, Kate. Um, my understanding of trauma surgery has really come from television, uh, particularly shows like Grey's Anatomy. And I've, I feel like this is pretty legitimate, but I wanted you to have the chance to speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, you know, I think there are days, I would say more like a mosh pit. <laughs> you know, I would, not Grey's, no, it's, more like a mosh pit or the Vic Market on um, Christmas Eve. That's always, that's another good one where, look, it, it's not like that. I think we, we are professional and it, um, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> it's not Grace. It's not Grace. So, oh. Yep, I've got one. Um, so what about having a family and fitting in all those hours and on call and the training and how have you managed all of that? Thank you for that question. That's um, I, I do often get asked that question. I have been exceptionally fortunate in my career to have the support of friends and family around me. I think a lot of my friends are not medical. That's kept me quite grounded. I think I was also particularly lucky to, to meet my husband before I finished medical school. Um, and even though I didn't have children until I was a practising doctor, um, it, it sort of... I think the hardest thing is actually finding a life partner. And I don't know if Natalie and Yumiko want to comment on that too. But, I mean, I just, where would you find the time if you are always at work? And then, God forbid, you probably end up with another doctor and I'm not sure that. <laughs> <Nah>. But anyway. <laughs> but, um, and, but I think I was lucky in, in that. So I've, I've got a very supportive, understanding um, uh, husband. And 
it was actually advice of one of my one of my supervisors and and his wife. So my supervisor's wife, my supervisor during training, his wife is an anaesthetist, and she said to me, we had to decide at which time whose career was actually focused for that year because it's really hard to fit in both. Mm. And mm. and so Ash and I have sort of done that along the way. We've done a, a lot of balancing. I have not been overseas to do a fellowship program. In fact, I haven't even left the state, which is. You know, I, I think it would have—it certainly would have been beneficial for me from a professional development point of view. But that didn't suit the rest of, of of my life and my family, and it meant that my husband didn't have to uproot his entire business. I was—I um, had my children just before starting advanced training, and then I had my second son during training. Um, again, it, look, it was hard. Mum and dad are close by. Um, they're still young and fit enough to be able to look after the kids, or well, they were at that stage at least anyway. We're now looking after them. But and and you know, my, my boys are now nearly 17, nearly 20, and I don't know where the time has gone. But you know, it's I think it's just something you do. Um, we didn't have a nanny, but we had a lot of support from friends and family. And Ash worked part-time, Ash worked from home. So that's where I was lucky, I guess. Do you know um Kate, you you bring up the topic of having really good mentors. I I, I do a fair bit of mentoring um, at my hospital, and um, a fair number of the doctors who I mentor have left medicine. (laughs) 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 Well, they had other more creative pursuits. I'm not sure I was the reason. Anyway, but um, I'm going to ask you, how important do you think it is um, to have a mentor and, and what do you think the roles of mentors are? Um, that's a very good question and it's a question I've thought a bit lately about trying to link our more junior staff in mm. with mentors um, at the Royal Melbourne just to make sure everyone does have that connection. I think it's important because we all, it's, it's a stressful job what we do. Mm. I think a lot of the stress in medicine and it's not just surgery, I think comes from the responsibilities that we have. We have responsibilities to patients, which I think unless you're a doctor or a nurse or you work in that environment, your friends just don't understand mm. that responsibility. You can't just clock off at the end of your shift usually. So, true. so you need to have someone to share what your feelings are about that. You know, the challenges that you face. Is it just me thinking this way or is this is this normal? You need someone to be able to bounce those feelings, those ideas off. When, when there are times where you're struggling with something or, or you're particularly happy about something too, you want to be able to share that with, with somebody else. Mm. Um, I think also then there's career progression and how, how what's the best way to navigate through this, this, this um, maze, which is not just surgical training, but I think just career progression in medicine in general, because I think we have an idea of what it's like at the end, what sort of doctor or surgeon we want to be but is it actually going to be like that? And it takes so long to get there too. Is it like that? Is it going to be like that in 10 years when I finish my training? So that's, um, you know, I think you need that that perspective from people who have recently been through the training program, who have been consultants out the other end for a while. Um, and you need it for your emotional well-being too. And um, I do love the title of the book, Emotional Female. I think we are all emotional beings. And I think if you're not emotional, you've probably got a problem. Um, <laughs> but I think you need it for your emotional well-being as well to be able to, you know, share share the, the stresses that are human stresses. Thank you, Kate. And we know that Yumiko has got a hot question for you. So we're going to throw to Yumiko, please. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, I just wanted to make a small point about mentors versus sponsors. It's something that I read about yes. recently um, in Julia Gillard's book, Women and Leadership. I think that, you know, in, in Australia, only 11 per, 11% of surgeons are women. So I think that having a female mentor can be really helpful just to increase that mm. visibility. Mm. I think if you see somebody else mm. who looks like you or is also a woman can help a lot. Mm. And then to go further from that, I like this idea of having a sponsor. So I guess for people listening who don't know the difference, a sponsor is different from a mentor in that they're not just there to give advice or someone to debrief with. They are actually active in helping you progress in your career. Mm. So, for example, if an opportunity comes up um, to put to put you forward. So I wonder whether there's any kind of space for sponsors within medicine, especially because... Not everyone has the privilege of having a family member. I think all three of us have mentioned the fact that none of us had medical people in our family. And I have noticed nepotism in medicine and in surgery. So I think having a sponsor can be helpful for people who don't have that same privilege. 
Totally agree. And it's something that we, we've discussed a lot in, you know, informing a mentoring program is focusing on sponsorship as well. And whether that's sponsorship specifically with progression onto the surgical training program or sponsorship with regards to research, a lot of surgeons now are seriously considering a, an academic academic string to their career as well and it's being that bit more active and it's more than just being there to give advice and it's it's, it's helping people it's giving them that step up so to speak because I can tell you there is nothing more rewarding when you see your trainees go through or somebody you've known as an intern or a resident and then they finish up as one of your colleagues as a consultant and you see them through that progress and you see them get it it's absolutely one of the most rewarding parts I think of the jobs that we do as, as a surgeon it makes you feel a bit old um, you feel like you're the grandma of the group but you do realize how how lovely it is to see that all the way through that sounds awesome Kate I was gonna say I wouldn't recommend academia as a pathway <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I live and breathe it it's wonderful uh, I was just going to ask Kate with as you said it's such a, a stressful environment like is there one particular I suppose patient who was very memorable for you who just you know stands out in your memory as having a great outcome um there's a lot that have had great outcomes I guess trauma's funny trauma's one of those it's it's it, it can it's almost a bit more black and white it's How's the best way to put this? Probably I'll answer I'll answer this in two ways. From an emotional point of view, the patient I remember the most is a patient who did not have a good outcome. Mm. But it's a patient who I sat there with the patient as she was dying and her two young children, and there was nobody else in the country with them at that stage. So these two primary school children were basically with their mum who was dying. Mm. Um, it was after a motor vehicle accident. And... The nurse and I sat there and we all cried together. Mm. And I think, and I was quite, I was still a trainee at that stage and we realised it was absolutely perfectly natural and normal. And it was kind of, it was quite an awakening. I thought, no, this is, there is a time and a place for our emotions and it's how we use them that's important. For a patient that's had a good outcome, there's, I've certainly had, a, there was, there's one patient in particular, and maybe because I have teenage sons, he's resonated with me the most, who just doing normal teenage things as they do, got himself involved. Um, probably not going into too much detail in case he's listening to it because I think it's not fair to identify people or let them realise it's them. But he got into a bit of a situation where he, he nearly died. And it was a group of us in theatre. It was a really challenging case. And two, all, all three of us, it was a vascular surgeon, a liver surgeon, and myself as the trauma surgeon. And we did an operation that night that we'd only ever read about, but it saved his life. Wow. And it was one of those things that we're taught that, oh, you'll never need to do this, but we'll teach you how to do it anyway. <laughs> and it was so one of my colleagues said, don't look now, but I'm just about to do something we've only read about. And it, look, it, it literally saved his life. It stopped the bleeding and he went on to make a good recovery. So I think that's probably the patient I'll remember the most where it came through just somebody just doing normal teenage things um, and was just lucky enough, I guess, that, you know, he was close enough to to the to the hospital to get what he needed in a timely fashion and great teamwork, I mm. think. You know, sharing it with colleagues was really rewarding. So I've got a I've got a good one too, Kate, that the trauma team saved. So this young woman was a physio driving to work and was uh, rear-ended and in intensive care with multiple broken bones and as you would know, she lost her spleen and she had a head injury and she was terribly, terribly unwell and then got out of ICU, went to the wards and had, they were calling it an acquired brain injury, so she wasn't functioning very well, had no memory, couldn't, you know, um, put many words together and her bones and everything started to heal and internally her liver was mending and went to rehab and she was in rehab for about six months. Anyway, the long and the short of this story is because some people had said she's never going to um, get back to being a physio and the long and the short of it, and I take my hat off to trauma surgeons, that she survived, she got better and she went on and did medicine and is a GP and I don't know if she's listening today but she was, so it, but it took a long time but wow, you know, people had discounted her and thought that she would never go back even to work and she's this gorgeous GP and she's gone on to be married and have 
kids and these incredible stories. I think trauma surgery and when people arrive at the front door of ED can be so mutilated and, you know, hardly recognisable and people have these skills to put them back together again. It's incredible. I'm guessing you don't do the orthopaedic side of things but internal um It's a bad bad day if I'm in the orthopaedics theatre, (laughs) the orthopaedic surgeon. (laughs) Look, it's, and I guess that's the thing, but we're we're pretty simple, us trauma surgeons. We keep things very simple. And um, you've heard about the ABCs. Um, I think Yumiko mentioned the EMST course in her book. And it's, it's, you know, we just stick to the airways, breathing, circulation. If you can get the blood flowing to the organs, that's when, you know, the plastic surgeons, the orthopaedic surgeons and the neurosurgeons can do their job. Our job is... To keep the blood flowing um, and to keep the patient alive so that that reconstructive phase can then happen too. It is a team effort. It's very much a, and I think that's what's pretty much attracted me to to trauma is that you're never on your own. You you, you manage this in this wonderful team of very talented people. Um, there's anaesthetists, there's obviously the nursing staff and that as well, but our intensivists, our emergency physicians, our radiologists, it really is a, a quite, quite an impressive team sport. Mm. Fabulous. Yeah, oh, look, I was just going to mention, um, Kate, you talked about how uh, people go into a hospital and they say, oh, gee, that doctor looks pretty young, or, gee, I remember training that doctor when they were just a medical student and now they're a, they're a, a registrar. My story was I went into hospital with an acute abdomen, which means, you know, my mat, for listeners, that means um, a very sore tummy. tummy. <laughs> a sore tummy. <laughs> sore tummy. And uh, I was in like you know, another world of pain. And um, lo and behold, um, this familiar face rocks up and goes, oh, Mal, oh, gee, I'll, I'll make sure you're okay. And he, he examines me and he, he does all the tests that, that surgical people do. And I say, but, but mate, aren't you a medical student? He goes, Rob, I graduated like 10 years ago. I'm the surgeon. So I thought, you know, <laughs> here's a guy. And I was thinking, isn't it amazing how, first of all, that, 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 I guess my my thinking at the time was that you can acquire all these skills, like the skills to become a surgeon. There's just so many of them. And then you put them to use. I mean, it all sounds so basic and so dumb, but the the amount of knowledge that goes into um, not just cutting, but being able to diagnose, being able to set the patient at ease, um, being able to work within a team is just extraordinary. So my hat's off to uh, all three of our guests this morning. We've really got to thank you. Thank you so much, Kate, for, for coming on the show. Thank you also, Yumiko, as well, for for um, receiving that email from uh, EpiPen and so graciously uh, um, coming on to our show. Same too to um, Dr. Lee, Dr. Natalie Nan. Uh, also uh, fantastic chatting to you about plastic surgery, and I'll be booking in in the next couple of uh, days. Uh... Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.